Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, I'd like to welcome all of you who are here, those of you in the room, those of you joining us online. So that, glad that you're with us as we continue in this series, The Beauty of Becoming. Before I get into today's sermon, I do want to address a certain segment of our congregation here and online. Uh, it's for those of you who, like myself, have entered into that beautiful, glorious season of 55 and older. So if you're under 55, you know, check Instagram or whatever for a few minutes. For those of you 55 and older who understand, I mean, we worked five and a half decades to get to this golden era, and we know the benefits. We know the, the discounts we get at Walgreens and, and Michaels and, and, and Fred Meyers on that first Tuesday, and the senior menu. We love that. And when we get fancy like Applebee's. I mean, you know what it's like to be in these wonderful years. And I want to tell you one more benefit for you who are over 55 today, is that this week only, on Wednesday, I am going to be hosting a free lunch for those of you who are 55 and older here at the church, Wednesday at noon. And if you're like, well, I'm not sure about lunch, we can have bottles of Insure for you. <laughs> but I want to invite you to join me this Wednesday noon uh, here at the church if you're 55 and older. And just be uh, really upfront with you. I, and we want to share with you information regarding the Cornwall Church Endowment. And I'm telling you, there will not be a hard pressure. There will be no hard sell. There are no, nothing you have to fill out. It's just to inform you, some, give you some information so you can evaluate, is this something that I might want to be a part of or, or tell others about? So I would love to have you. If you want to be a part of that lunch on Wednesday, we do need to have you sign up. You can go to the website, go to the events and click down. And I know for some of you who are over 55, the website thing scares you to death. So we've made it easy. You can just email us. If you don't want to do the website thing, email at SharonB at CornwallChurch.com. Just say, I want to be at Wednesday. Some of you like email. You're still not quite there yet. Go over to that landline and that rotary phone that you still have. <laughs> Call the church and just say, I want to be at the... And if none of that works for you, after service, just come and say, hey, Bob, I want to be at the lunch on Wednesday, and I'll get you signed up. We'd love to have you there. It's going to be a great time. We want to just give you some information. All right, now, let's bring the youngins back in. Uh, everybody, uh, you know... Come on, here we go, here we go. We're all back together on this. We've been in this series, and we've been looking at different virtues every week. We'll continue that today and for the next two weeks until Easter. But today I want to borrow uh, some, some help from uh, uh, some poets, I shall say, of, of yesteryear. Not like uh, over 55 yesteryear, but from a, a few years back to kind of tell you what we're going to do today. I'm going to borrow some lyrics from a group called Salt and Peppa, not to be confused with Peppa Pig, totally different thing. Years ago, Salt and Peppa said these words, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. And sex is an interesting word because just when I say the word sex, it evokes a response in you. Some of you are shocked right now. Some of you are nervous. Some of you are anticipating some of you are unsure. Some of you are saying, I, this is my last week here. <laughs> and I just want to say that when I say the word sex or those lyrics, it's not for shock value. It's not to just grab your attention. It's because of this. If we're going to talk about virtues that are Christ-like in a world that is not, we would be remiss to not address issues of sex and sexuality in this series. I think I would be doing a disservice to the body of Christ if we're talking about becoming more like Christ and especially in the world in which we live and not address this issue. And so we will. And that's what we will do today. And we'll look at this. And I think that as maybe a, a launching pad, there is no better verse for us in our world, in our culture, in our day regarding sex and sexuality. There is no better verse for us to start with 
Then that familiar verse out of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says to them, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Notice, Paul says, when in Rome, do not do as the Romans. In fact, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you were with us last week when we talked about repent and, and that Dallas Willard definition for repent is to reconsider your strategy for living. That's what he's talking about here. So that, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And today, that's what I want us to focus on. I want us to see what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will is for us in their areas of sex and sexuality. Now, some of you right now are saying, well, I know what God's will is. Don't. I couldn't be further from the truth. Who do you think created it? I mean, the opening pages of scripture, here's the scene. Naked man standing in front of a naked woman, and he gives her this love poem about her being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. They're in the presence of God, and it is good God's there, he's seeing all this, approving of it, and follows it up with this verse. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. They don't even have a mom. But he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is God's idea. When God's creating the world, he comes to the pinnacle of his creation. Humanity has got, ah, I got this great idea. And the angels are saying, we don't get it. And he says, you never will. And so he does this. And in that one verse, I believe, in God's perfect created world, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One man, one woman, in a binding covenant relationship called marriage. That's God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, sex has been said is, is like a river or, or fire. That within the proper parameters, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's wonderful, it's life-giving. But that same river or that same fire that's outside of those parameters or that's misused or, or is confused can, can be disastrous, can be destructive, can even be fatal. And I would say that there's no stronger force in human nature than this one, and so we ought to get it right. And I'll say this and acknowledge this right up front. In the area and the topic of sex and sexuality, the magnitude of what could and should be talked about is so vast, there's not a chance I'll even come close to scratching the surface. But today, I want us to look at this virtue, the virtue of chastity. The virtue of chastity. This is one that you don't hear about a whole lot. Now, some of you, you hear the word chastity, and immediately your mind goes to monks and nuns. I get that. But let me tell you and clarify that chastity and celibacy are not synonymous. They are not synonymous. In fact, I would say this. You can have the virtue of chastity and not be celibate, but the converse is true. You can be celibate and not have the virtue of chastity. I mean, think about this. If celibacy is this commitment or designation where you will not engage in a sexual activity, you can do that either by choice or by circumstance, but not have, but not have chastity. You can still have all kinds of sexual fantasies in your mind from the romance novels or the pornography or an obsession fixation on this topic or objectification of others and the way you look at them, the way you think of them, the way that you deal with them. You may be celibate, but you're not chaste. Isn't that what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. That's the deal. But I tell you. So there's more to it than just not doing a physical sexual act. In fact, the most powerful sex organ we have is right here in our minds. And speaking of monks and such, there was a Franciscan friar named Brother Giles. Not to be confused with Jay Giles, who sang Angel is a Centerfold, but I don't want to get that song stuck in your head. Brother Giles said this. Brother Giles said this. By chastity... I mean to keep guard over all the senses 
with the grace of God. So here's how I want to define it for us today, is that the virtue of chastity is honoring God with our sexuality. Again, some of you right now are saying, you go get them, Pastor Bob, preach to those young guys. Can I say, this sermon is for everybody, not just the young guys. This sermon is for all of you. You say, well, it doesn't apply to me. But God may use something in this sermon that he would have you speak to someone else. This is for everybody. This sermon is for males and for females. For the young and restless and those who will be having lunch with me on Wednesday. It's for the married people. It's for the single people. It's for those who are separated, divorced, and widowed. It's for those who are dating, those who are not dating, those who want to be dating, those who are not married, who will never be married, who hope to be married. This is all skate today. This is for all of us. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, you might think, well, Bob, you're cherry-picking verses now for your purposes. You will see in a few moments that the context of that verse is well within the context of the topic that we are addressing and looking at today. You know, it's an amazing thing how seldom we talk about this in this context, and yet how frequently Scripture refers to sex and sexuality. How often, from cover to cover, there's instruction, there's correction, there's, you know, all these examples, there's all of it. I mean, as I mentioned, in Genesis, the opening pages, you have this, this God's perfect and good and pleasing will that's, that's laid out for us. And then, then you have, you know, all of some difficulties after the fall and that, and then you get to Exodus and the Ten Commandments, two of them deal with this, should not commit adultery, and then that tenth one about not coveting your neighbor's wife. Then you get into Deuteronomy, and it repeats some of those things again. You get into the, into the years of the kings and the judges, and that becomes an issue that's always being dealt with. Get into the wisdom literature. Proverbs. Proverbs, this book that has just these practical axioms for life. Go back through and read how often it refers to sex and our sexuality in there. And Song of Solomon, whoo, wow. That one on its own. And then going through the prophets as they're always trying to get Israel back on track. And very often it's because of some immorality. You get to the New Testament and Jesus addresses it, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but there and other places elsewhere. As the church begins to blossom in Acts and it goes outside of Judaism and becomes a part of the Gentile nations in the, in the Greco-Roman world, this is an issue that has to be dealt with. And it is. In almost every single one of Paul's letters, he's talking to them about this. And even in the end, at the book of Revelation, when Jesus addresses the seven churches in Asia, when he comes to Thyatira, he says, listen, you've been drawn away because of enticed by the sexual immorality of the culture around you. From cover to cover. And here's what's amazing to me. That in God's perfect world, in the, in the garden, when there's no sin, when there's Adam and Eve... In God's select holy nation of Israel with Judaism and, and, and the Torah and, and Yahweh being their God. In a culture like Corinth and, and, and the world where, where there's all of this pagan influence. In all three settings, God's good, perfect, and pleasing will never changes. It remains the same. And scripture speaks of this over, listen, I'm telling you, if I talked about sex as much as the Bible does, you would think I would have a one-track mind. And you might be saying, well, then, what's the deal with the Bible then? Why is it so obsessed with it? Maybe because we are. Because it's always on the forefront of our thinking. It's around us everywhere. It's within us. Nancy, um, Nancy Ortberg, years ago, was a leader of a, a young adults group, a very large young adults group. She was a leader, and she said that they were primarily 20-somethings, not exclusively, but primarily 20-somethings group. And she said, this group that I lead, they only want to talk about three things in our ministry, sex, the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? I mean, that's just it. It's just all the time. It's what we think about. Listen, in our culture that we live in, we are bombarded with images and messages and scenes on every front. I will spare you all the statistics, though I could bore you or at least um, overwhelm you with the statistics. 
But in the world that we live in, just in the entertainment that's a part of our world, our mainstream world, the numbers of references or scenes or innuendos or overt you know, uh, comments or jokes. In fact, I would challenge you sometime when you're sitting down to a night of Netflix, just kind of take a mental, take a tablet, just do a little hash mark for every time there's a reference to sex or there's an innuendo or there's something insinuated or there's an overt say or there's a scene, you'll maybe not be surprised, but it's constant. We're bombarded with it in the movies around us and the music. I mean, again, this I know is dating me, but the first 45 I've ever bought, some of you don't know what that is, but the first 45 I ever bought was a song by the Beatles called, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Today, hold your hand. Are you kidding? I want, I mean, you know, I mean, it just gets very explicit in a big hurry. And here's something that's interesting. When is the last time in mainstream media that you ever heard or saw or had referenced sex in the context of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage? I mean, if you were just to take the media, our entertainment, it would seem to send a message, if you want to have sex, don't get married. And it's not just the media. I mean, the pressure, the social pressure, the friends pressure, and I'm not just talking about, you know, high school peer pressure, college peer pressure. I mean, you know, adults, the pressure from friends, from your family, and then all the social stuff with, with the Snapchat and these hookup apps and, and, and just all the, I mean, now when celebrities are talking about their open marriages, that we live in a culture where a sexual ethic outside of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is not only accepted, it's expected and it's celebrated. And now, why is this such a deal? Why is it so prevalent? Maybe because it's kind of hardwired into us. Maybe because we are created as sexual beings. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created them, and he says, And now this is my good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. And then there was the fall. And ever since the fall, ever since our world became broken, ever since evil entered into it and there was sin, from that point until this point, God's sexual ethic seems countercultural, revolutionary. I mean, you want to talk about a sexual revolution, Go according to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's a sexual revolution. So much so that if you say, you know what? I think I will live my life according to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll be seen as living an alternative lifestyle. It's like God's original plan is the new alternative lifestyle. If you decide that you're going to hold on to your virginity, or at least from this day forward until you're married, if you ever get married, your friends and even some of your families in this world will think you're living in an alternative reality. If you choose to not engage in pornography and not to look at this stuff as entertainment, you're living in an alternative reality in our culture. If you decide that, that at least from this day forward, you're not going to brag about a body count. In fact, from here forward, you're going to have a body count of zero until the day you get married. If you get married, you're going to be seen as living in an alternative reality and lifestyle. If you choose not to objectify others and see them as a commodity or, or as a sex object and look at them with honor and respect, people are going to start thinking, you know, you're kind of an alternative lifestyle. If you decide the things I read, the things I watch, the things I listen to, I'm going to be mindful of those things and the messages that are put into my head and maybe some things I'm not going to listen to anymore. If you decide, I'm going to live with this virtue of chastity, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, you're going to be seen as living an alternative lifestyle. And yet, 
That's how God has created and designed us. So today, I want us to look at a passage of scripture out of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is in the back of the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul wrote. Uh, if you have your Bible, it's easy to skip over or to miss. It's way back there. It's easier to probably dial it up on your phone and get it that way. But as you're looking there, let me give you a little bit of the background for this letter. Thessalonica is a port town in Greece. Uh, today it's called Thessaloniki, but in, in that day it was Thessalonica. It's a port town up in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. And with it being a port town, there's a lot of people coming and going, a lot of commerce, a lot of outside influences. And, and in this town, uh, this town was in Greece and is a part of the Greco-Roman world and the Greco-Roman culture. Again, as, as I mentioned, in that culture, like our own, except even more so, sexual promiscuity and immorality was accepted, expected, and celebrated to the greatest degree. In fact, in Thessalonica there was a temple to one of the Greek gods, a god named Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, fertility, and pleasure. Now, I don't know who made up Greek gods, but I'm guaranteeing you this one was a guy. Let's make it probably, probably it's in Greece, Greek, it's probably from Greek row. There's a frat house, all right? Sigma Epsilon Chi, figure that one out. The frat house, Sigma Epsilon Chi. They said, you know what? We need a God. Let's create one. Dionysus. Let's call him Dionysus. Let's have him be the God of wine, fertility, and pleasure. Now, you don't have to think too hard in that culture of what kind of religious cultic acts would be taking place in that temple. And that was what was happening. Well, on Paul's second missionary journey, he finds himself traveling through, uh, through Greece, and he stops there in, in, um, in Thessalonica. And as is his, his custom, he begins to share about Jesus, and that's his whole purpose. And, and there are people that begin to hear the gospel and respond to the grace and become followers of Jesus, part of the kingdom of God. He establishes a church there. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 17 on your own, but it ends up there's a big riot, so they have to get Paul out of town. But there's a church that's established there. Later, Paul writes a letter to this church, 1 Thessalonians is that letter. And many scholars believe this was the very first letter that Paul wrote. Maybe Galatians, but most likely 1 Thessalonians. The first letter. So when he writes them, he commends them for how well they're doing, how they're thriving and flourishing in the kingdom of God. They're following this. They're living in grace. And then he gets to what we're going to look at today. He gets to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he gives them the talk. Did you ever get the talk? No? Oh, I'm going to have to do that today then. Okay, honey, your body's going to start changing. You never got the talk? No one. Are you kidding me? Did anyone get the talk? Is there anyone? Maybe you're all asleep. You're saying, I'm not, I'm not saying a thing in this sermon. You know the talk? Duh. I remember the, the first time, the first time I got the talk. And, and, you know, honestly, I don't know if I remember it or if I just remember hearing about it. I called my mom yesterday just to confirm this. We were still living in Ruston, Louisiana. We were young kids. My folks were young kids at the age I am now. But I was probably four or five years old, and my mom had gone off to the Women's Missionary Society meeting at the church. And that night, apparently, one of my older siblings, my brother and my sister, had asked dad about where babies come from, and he just decided it was his fatherly duty to make sure we understood all the details, nuance, and over details about how this happens, and he just unloaded the whole system on us. Not age-appropriate at all. My mom said she came home from the Women's Missionary Society meeting, walked in the house, and us three kids were sitting on the couch with eyes as wide as saucers. And she said, what is going on? And he just kind of explained, I thought they ought to know where babies came from. Like, maybe not everything the first time. Well, Paul's getting ready to give them the talk, a talk which apparently some of you have never had. <laughs> He's going to give them a talk, and it's not the first time, as we will see. He's already told them these things, and he wants to remind them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he starts off this way. Finally, brothers... 
We instructed you, past tense, we've already told you this, we've instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do, to do this more and more. He said, we, we told you, this is how you live in a manner in order to please God. They lived in a culture that specialized in living in a manner in order to please themselves. But now they're living in a different way, living in order to please God. And can I say, that ought to be our goal as well. That if our goal is not to live in, an, in a way that pleases God, then we need to back the train up and re-examine some things. And he says, and you're doing this. You're doing great with this. And at the end, he says, and we want to encourage you to do it even more and more. Sounds a lot like our foundational verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And he says, here's the goal, that you live your life in a way that, that honors and glorifies God and does it even more and more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, the essence of chastity is not the suppression of lust, but the total orientation of one's life toward a goal. So if all we're thinking about is, well, I've got to stop having that thought, and I can't look at this, and I can't do this, and I've got to suppress this, and these feelings, and all this, and I've got to keep all this stuff down. He says, no, 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 no. Chastity is saying, okay, those are there, but I'm going to reorient my whole life towards a better goal, a higher goal. Am I living my life in a way that honors and glorifies God to know what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, to understand his character, to be transformed into his likeness? That's what chastity is live a life in an order to please God. Then in verse 2, he says this, for you know what instructions we gave you. Again, he says, I've already taught you these things. I've preached these things. I've modeled these things. We've had discussions about these things. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, the things I told you, I didn't make those up. They're not my ideas. They're not my opinions. This is by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And can I just say to you that today this sermon that I'm giving to you is not just something I'm making up, not just some rules I came up with, not just something I thought up. And I, and I don't want to be like using this as leverage or manipulation, but what I say today is on the authority of God's word in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God and I want for us God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, then from verse 3 to 8, Paul just lays out four things that he's already talked to them about. They're almost like bullet points. If you have your Bible, if you're looking at this, you can see that each of the four, they're separated by semicolons. It's like, here's a thought, but we're not done. And here's a thought, but then we're not done. And here's a thought. There's four of these things. And he lays them out. Verse 3 starts off this way. It is God's will. Now remember, that's what we're talking about, right? God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's what we want in our lives. It is God's will that you should be holy. Holy, let me remind you, means to be set apart. Set apart from and set apart to. Set apart from the world. Set apart from the culture. Set apart from the mores and the norms. Set apart from their morality. Set apart to God, to his kingdom, to his will, and to his ways. So that's the desire, is, is that you should be holy. And this is God's good and pleasing and perfect will for you. Now what's interesting is you'll see in all four of these, he says, should. That you should. That you should. And you know how we are with that. We recoil. Someone says, well, you should do this, and you should do this, and you should do this. And we respond and say, don't should on me. You know, leave that to you. Don't tell me what to do. Here's a question for us today. Do we have a God with enough authority in our lives that he can tell us what we should do? Or does God just serve our purposes? Just answer our prayers? Just bring blessings for us? says, this is God's will. You should be holy, set apart to him. And then he goes on. 
The second part, first in the colon, he says, this is God's will that you should be holy, and it's God's will that you should avoid risky behavior. Like, screen your partners. Use protection. Just be careful. Now, that's not what he says. This is God's will that, that you should be holy and that, and that you should avoid STDs. Yes, yes. Avoid sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, I know we have antibiotics, we have treatments, we have ointments, and we have all this stuff for you. But, you know, it's just going to be a lot easier if you just avoid the sexually transmitted diseases. That's not what he says. This is God's will that you should be holy and that you should avoid unwanted pregnancies. Yeah, because I mean, that's going to create a whole other list of questions you've got to ask. Am I going to carry this to completion? Are we going to abort this child? Am I going to keep the child? Am I going to give the child up? Am I going to be married? Are we going to do this together? Am I going to be responsible? Am I going to tell my family? That's not what he says. Listen, that's the kind of thing that a public service announcement will say. Make sure you avoid these consequences. This is the bottom line of sex education. But it's not what he says. This is God's will that you should be holy and that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, oh, wait, wait, who's talking about immorality? We're talking about these consequences we want to avoid. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to take a little bit farther. But you should avoid sexual immorality. Avoid immorality. And this is where we start getting into our justification. Well, okay, now wait a second, Bob. Now, this is like 2,000 years ago that he wrote this, right? Like way across the country. Times have changed. Things are different now. I mean, come on, and, and really, what is immorality? I mean, what's immorality to you may not be immorality to me. I mean, in, in our culture, you know, you got to kind of decide that on your own, right, Bob? I mean, and beside that, I mean... Avoiding sexual immorality, it, it's true, but like we're adults. I mean, we're not talking about high school kids rolling around the backseat. Like we're grown adults and we're consenting. We've had this discussion. We've agreed. It's our bodies. We can make, that's not sexual immorality if we're adults and we're consenting and we've agreed, right? That's not, that, that, I mean, that's, that's, oh, okay, okay. And we love each other. Well, okay, well, I mean, we like each other a lot. Well, I mean, we really enjoy what we do is what I'm getting at. And we, and we have a connection. We have a song. When that song comes on, it just, I mean, we can it, And beside that, I mean, he, he, said that, he said that we might get married someday. So or I'm, 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 we're engaged. We're, we are going to get married someday. I mean, you know, it's interesting when, when Paul writes... It's God's will that you would avoid sexual immorality. He chooses a very specific word. At the risk of sounding again like Pastor Kip, the Greek word is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And the definition of pornea is sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of the parameters of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, well, then why would he do that? I mean, what's the big deal about this? I mean, everyone does it. Animals do it. I mean, come on, this is, it's natural. It's, it's our desires. It's the way we're wired. We're just, it's just our animal instincts. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just a physical act. What if it's not? What if it's more than that? Can we get real serious on this for a minute? If it was just a physical act... Why is it that sexual abuse in children and those older than just childhood years creates such deep trauma, scars that mess them up for years and sometimes are being worked out for the rest of their life? If it's just a physical act, why is there that kind of suffering and destruction that comes when it's abused? If it's just a physical act, why is rape so deeply, deeply violating. It's just a physical act, right? If it's just a physical act, why does infidelity cause such hardship and create such pain in families and marriages and homes? It's just a physical act. Come on. 
If it was just a physical act, why is it that when people say, you know, my greatest regret, my deepest, darkest secrets, the thing I've never, ever shared with anybody is usually, usually followed with something sexual. Maybe it's not just a physical act. And when God says one plus one equals one flesh, that is a connection on the deepest part of our personhood. Now, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, another church that's in the Greco-Roman culture. And he points this out in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He writes to them, flee from sexual immorality. That word pornea again. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It's not just a physical act. There's something that's violated there. Because it was created that one plus one equals one. But then you go and have another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one, and another one, and you can't help but reap some consequences from that. And could it be that our God loves us so much that he wants to protect us from some of the hardships and the sufferings of when this beautiful gift is used outside of the parameters of his will. See, our culture would say, you want protection? Use a condom. Latex will protect you. And while it may protect you from some sexually transmitted diseases, and it may protect you from some unwanted pregnancies, will a thin piece of latex protect you from some of the emotional baggage that comes with some of this abuse, some of this misuse? Will a condom protect you from the relational turmoil and the lack of trust and the comparison and the fear and all that stuff that goes with all of that? Will it protect you from the spiritual impact? Maybe God says, I don't want you to have to deal with that. And I want to provide for you. This is a beautiful gift I've given to you in the proper parameters. And the greatest intimacy is found in exclusivity and the covenant of marriage. That's God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I mentioned in Thessalonica there was a temple to Dionysus. In Corinth there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Same root word that we get aphrodisiac, so you know where this is going. And it was said that in Corinth that at the temple of Aphrodite, the temple owned 1,000 temple prostitutes that brought in a great deal of money. Aphrodite was this goddess of love and pleasure and lust. And that there were 1,000 prostitutes that the temple owned. And the people in the church in Corinth had grown up with that as the reality of their culture. Some of them had visited those temple prostitutes. And then they found Jesus. And as they live in the shadow of this temple that's dedicated towards lust and promiscuity, Paul writes these words. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. He says, this is God's will, that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Let me just throw two questions out there for you. If you are, or when you have been, involved in sexual activity outside of God's plan, did it make your life better or more complicated? Be honest with yourself. And the second question, if you are or when you have been involved in sexual activity outside of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, did it draw you closer to God or distance you from him? All right. 
I have got to fly. Let's keep going. All right, moving on. Verse 4. It is God's will that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, can we just agree that while it says his, we're going to use this inclusively. Should learn to control. Learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable, not like the rest. I mean, you think about this. In any area of your life, if in any area of your life, your desires, your impulses, your appetites, and your feelings control you, it will end in disaster. If I let my appetites control me, I would eat nothing but cookies and chocolate milk. You know that. And it would be a disaster. Financially, if I let my desires and my impulses control me, I would be in so much debt, I would be a financial wreck. Relationally, if I said everything I thought, or if I reacted every time I was upset, or if I drove someone on the freeway, it would be a mess. Vocationally, if you tell you, go in and tell your job, take this job, I mean, you know, it's going to have an impact. Likewise, in our sexuality and with our body, if we let our desires and our feelings and our, our impulses and our appetites control us, it's going to be a disaster. So he says, learn to control your body. And some of you will push back and say, Bob, you don't understand me. I know you're older. and You've got no testosterone left. You don't understand me. I need to have sex. Well, let me just tell you something. You need to have air or you will die. You need to have food or you will die. You need to have water or you will die. In all of human history, no one has ever died because they didn't have sex. <laughs> Cause of death, no sex. You don't need, and you may want. You say, well, I can't control myself. And Paul says, yeah, if you're living like the rest of them that don't know God, but you have the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, and part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Say, well, I don't have that gift. It's not a gift. He says, learn. Learn to control your body. When he writes to the church again in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You will be tempted. There's no doubt about that. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Learn. Take control. Be in control. You know, my mom gave me some really good advice. She, she had a better approach than my dad did on the talk. Uh, we grew up in Vancouver, Washington. Right across the river was Warner Pacific. There's a college. A lot of people going into ministry would come to our church. My dad kind of mentored them. My dad was a pastor. And my mom would often say to these guys who were going into the ministry, say, let me give you some advice that will serve you well in the ministry. And this was her advice. She gave it to me. She gave it to a lot of young pastors. Here's my advice. Keep your Bible open and your zipper closed. That's good advice. Do you know that there's a lot of guys that would still be in the ministry today if they would listen to my mama? <laughs> Keep your Bible open and your zipper closed. Hey, can I just say, if you're dating or if you're going to be dating, why don't you delay the physical aspect of your relationship, A-L-A-P. It has nothing to do with sitting on a lap. Delay the physical aspect of your relationship as long as possible. Because no one ever said, our relationship would be so much better if we would have gotten physical faster. No one says that. Oh, man, if we would have split the sheets on that first night, man, our relationship would be thriving today. No one says that. And here's the truth. Do the research. This isn't from faith-based stuff. This is just sociologically. The higher and greater promiscuity before marriage, the greater likelihood of infidelity after marriage. That's just statistical facts. And for those of you who are living together, you're trying to follow God. Statistics would show that those who live together, cohabitate before marriage, in their first year of marriage, their odds of divorce are lower than those who did not live together. But in every year after the first year, their odds of divorce increases. And I just, as long as I'm getting in everybody's face, there's all kinds of tension today anyway. I might as well just go for it. You're not coming back. If you're living together, move out or move on with the relationship. 
If you like it, you ought to put a ring on it. That's a lyric for those of you who are having lunch with me on Wednesday. I mean, honestly, it's kind of what I had to tell Doreen. I was talking to her about free milk and a cow. No huggy, no kissy till I got a wedding vow. She said, my Bobby, my honey, don't put my love on my shelf. I said, don't hand me no line and keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> Not really. I mean, it's just a Georgia satellite song that I really like. But regardless, and, and one more thing, and then I, I'm really, I'm way over time already, and we're still not done. So one more thing. Sex is a beautiful unifier in marriage. It's a very weak foundation for marriage. If you're only getting married to have sex, that will not last. I'm not saying you won't have sex throughout, but that's a weak foundation. Let's move on. We've got to keep going. All right. Where are we here? All right. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6. And that in this matter, what we've been talking about is God's will. No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. And I think what he's saying here is, is respect others. Don't wrong others. Don't take advantage of them. Don't objectify them. Don't use them as a commodity. Don't use them just as a, something to fulfill your pleasures or to see them just as a sex object. That, that they would respect them and you would honor them. Paul gives great advice to a young pastor named Timothy, and I think it would serve us well. When he says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. What if we, the followers of Christ, treated each other as brothers and sisters, people who had been created in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of the Son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and their body is a temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in? What if we treated one another that way? Honored one another that way? What if we looked at ourselves that way? What if we respected ourselves enough to say, I'm created in the image of God. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Son, and I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and my body's a temple, and I'm not just going to give it away to anyone that comes along. And I want to know God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'll respect others, and I'll respect myself. And then he comes back around to where we started in verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, here's kind of his conclusion in this section. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say, and again, I want to be careful on this. Because some of you will walk out of here today. And you will say, I don't agree with him. I don't believe the way he believes. I'm not going to live the way he says. First of all, I'm just glad that you've stayed this long. And that's your prerogative. But if, if you reject this, can I just be honest? You're not rejecting me. This is God's will. God's plan. Let me just finish with this. You might be sitting here today thinking, yeah, Bob, it's kind of too late for me. I mean, I've messed up. I mean, I've messed up. So what does it even matter at this point? You know, I'm not a virgin, and I haven't kept God's way. And I just, you know what? And some of you may be sitting here with guilt and shame, feeling judged and condemned by me. Can I point us all to Jesus again? John chapter 1, it tells us about our wonderful Savior. At the word, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That there is grace to forgive. There is grace to redeem. There is grace to restore. There's grace to strengthen from this day forward. And the truth is, we can continue on this journey in the beauty of becoming. There was a time when Jesus had a woman brought before him. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. She was guilty. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. 
She had been used. She had been used sexually, and now she's been used as a pawn to try and corner Jesus, and they're condemning her. One of the most tender moments in all of the gospel is found in John chapter 8 when Jesus says this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, leave your life of sin. No condemnation, but an invitation. No condemnation, but an invitation to know, to experience, to live God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'll read this, then we'll be done. Again, out of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Father, I am so grateful for your truth. Thankful for your goodness. Jesus, I am thankful for your grace. And I pray that today that your word and your spirit would impact our thinking, the way we live, the way we approach our sex and our sexuality. God, that we would follow your good, pleasing, and perfect will. That we would have this virtue of chastity in our life. And that we would live our lives in order to please you. I pray this in your great name. Amen.